Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me Helen Walsh. Hello, Helen. Hello there. It's very false, isn't it, to do, uh, do an intro after just having a quick chat. But anyway, um, do you want to tell us the name of the film and your role in that that we've come together to talk about in the podcast this week? Yeah, okay, so the film is called The Violators, and I'm the writer-director. So, and, and based on that, then, so do you want to give us a brief synopsis as to what that's about? Okay, yeah, it's um, it's a contemporary drama. It's about um, two teenage girls, Shelley, played by Laura McQueen, and Rachel, played by Rogan Ellis, whose lives are, are brought together through um, a relationship with a local loan shark and owner of a chain for cash for golf stores, Mikey Finnegan. So um, Shelley, who's played by Laura McQueen, she finds herself rehoused on a on a sink estate after testifying against the abusive father um and it's a place she really detests so she's she's very much excluded from mainstream society she's excluded from school um and she also falls into the role of playing a surrogate mother to her two brothers and she wiles away a day swimming around the dockland area of the estate she's she's a petty opportunist she's always on the lookout for um for Lou and one day she takes a a cheap necklace which she's stolen into the cash for gold store and there she encounters the the um the predatory but quite charming figure of, of Mikey Finnegan played by Stephen Lord and um across the road watching the gold store is another teenage girl Rachel played by Brogan Ellis and she comes from a radically different background um and it's 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 really the intertwining of these two stories that's where the, the story begins cool cool now you you if I remember rightly, you had your premiere of this last year at Edinburgh, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, it's been such a such, such a long process. Um, but yeah, I had the had the premiere June June twenty third last last year, and then it was released theatrically in June uh, in last month. Um, but there's, there's still a few select screenings at, at various art and, and film festivals around the UK. Um, so. You know, check out the Violators Facebook for, for details about those. And is, is there plans then to, to make it available video on demand or DVD? Is that in the? Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's released on DVD today. Um, okay. Can all about today all being Monday, the twenty fifth of July. 
That's correct. I hope. And um, it can be also seen on demand at BFI Player, um, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Videos, Sky Store, We Are Colony, and um, I've probably missed a few out, so check the um, Violators Facebook page for details. We'll put, a, we'll put a link in the show notes to your Facebook page, so that's all there. Okay, great, thanks. All right, so knowing that then, get a beat um, It'd be interesting to know then, from from uh, your point of view, then as the as the writer and director, this puts you in a good position because obviously you've you've conceived this as well as produced it. So, um, t- thinking of that point when you're at the blank piece of paper stage, what what compelled yeah. you to write the Violators? Where did that start for you? Um, I think that the the, the the story um, has been with me for for a very long time. I think since being a teenager. I mean, Shelley's narrative is a really familiar one. Um, it was there when I was growing up. Young girls excluded from mainstream society who come under the watchful gaze of predatory males. And it's still every bit as commonplace now. But really, I think, yeah, I think it was a film that was very much born out of the landscape. Mm. It's difficult to, to talk or even think about the film without, you know, talking about the landscape. So, um, it was, it was filmed in an area called Birkenhead, which which Morrissey describes as, as the bowels of, of the North. I, I, I beg to differ. I think it's an area that's, that's really brutally poetic. Um, and this area sits within spitting distance from Liverpool. Yeah, it's completely cut adrift from it. There's a real sense of alienation and a hardened cynicism that's just embedded into the landscape. So I think is that, is, that, is, that from, is that from Birkenhead to Liverpool or Liverpool to Birkenhead? It, it's from Birkenhead. It's from Birkenhead to Liverpool. Yeah. 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 Um, I, but I, you know, I, I, I find it cinematically beautiful, especially the the post-industrial wastelands of, of the Docklands. Mm. And wh- wh- when I thought about writing the Violators initially as a as a novel, I thought I would struggle to to evoke and portray the look and, and feel of this world. It's a very very visual world. Mm. Um, I, the if you don't know if you've seen the film yet, Stuart. Yes. Yeah, the, the the rusting cranes, the dirty burnt yellow of the wasteland grass, and and the baby pink pastels that I, I fed through, mm. um, kind of most notable in in, in Shelley's chip nails. I really really love that that colour. It's the colour that we ended up using for the artwork, and and in the grade wherever we saw that particular hue of pink, we brought it out. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, it represents the last vestiges of, of Shelley's innocence and, and girlhood. Um, but, you know, get, going back to what you, you were saying, I think there are some stories that can only be told visually, and I think The Violators is one of them. So so in terms of you, so you, did you start with the character, or did you start with the landscape and, and to see who you could find there? I, do you know, I, I, think, I think the two things are, are, are very much intertwined. Um, I think, you know, characters very much like, like us, like people, they're all products of of the landscape and mm. um, so so yeah you know the characters do evolve out of the landscape um and that was you know that was that was one of the the difficulties with with casting because um i think you know, i really wanted to use unknown actors so we um you know we're, we're, we're very convinced um as an audience when, when we've seen it on when we've seen it on screen for the first time mm. that those characters live and breathe and, and, and spit out their environment. They're not, you know, actors that have just been placed in a particular setting or, or, or locale. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, for, for me, I mean, it had a, 
and it's, it always sounds daft when you say this from a British point of view, probably to the rest of, to America at least, but I think the continent of Europe would understand. Your film felt very European as opposed to, you know, a, sta a standard sort of drama, if, you, if that makes sense. That sense of not knowing who the characters were, the sort of, um, yeah. the realness to the, to the action. I mean, I know we have like Ken uh. Loach and Mike Lee, but ostensibly it's not a common practice in this country. Thank you. I take, I take that as a as a huge compliment. <laughs> but um, I I think you know. Um, I mean, I I grew up in in Warrington. Yeah. And I think we had um, a video store, one video that whole of Visions video that whole of the whole of Warrington used, um, and a lot of you know, in my into cinema was very very kind of male dominated. Um, Hollywood cinema. I loved all the. The Rambo films, the Rocky films, Terminator, all those, all those type of films. And then it wasn't really until I was in my very early twenties and I was living in Liverpool, mm. um, which coincided with the opening of a picture house. Um, but you know, that was that was really when I started to see film differently and became really engaged, not just as um, an audience member, but um, I don't know, as a, as, a, as a writer and also even, you know, back then, even though directing, you know, was, was nowhere near, it wasn't in my thoughts, I think you start looking at film critically and analytically, mm. looking how shots work, looking how, um, you know, um, actors that don't come from the star, star system. And, you know, some of my favourite filmmakers are, are European. The Dardenne brothers mm. are hugely influential to me as a, as a writer, as, as a young novelist. Um, Lucas Moodison, um, Gus Van Sant, and, you know, more recently, um, Jacques Odiard, who's one of my favourite directors. Okay. Um, and Xavier, Xavier Dolan, who's, you know, he's Canadian. Um, but I think he's, his films have a very distinct European sensibility. <laughs> How did how did the challenge of writing a screenplay differ from novels for you? I mean, you've already said that part of the challenge for you was that this story had to be vi was visual more than it could have been done as a, as, as written prose. So, what was what was the challenges for you as a writer, sort of turning your skills to screenwriting? Um, I think you know, I think with with novel writing, um, it's it's quite a selfish process. Okay. And you have, I think you have, you know, you have a, an enormous amount of freedom. Um, you have a kind of a real luxury of, of time and space to flesh out characters, flesh out stories. Um, and I, I really like the brevity of um, script writing. It is, it is all about plot. It is all about story. Mm. Um, and I'm, an, I'm a novelist. I'm a novelist who is is character driven. And I, you know, I firmly believe that even in filming, you know, I think that that character comes first, and and plot comes second. And yeah. character, you know, is, is the most important thing. Everything stems from from character. Mm -hmm. um, but you do have, you know, you have. Um, you do have to be, you know, you have to be stricter um, with, with with your art form, with the, the kind of art of, of storytelling. So I learned a lot from, I think now, you know, when, if I ever go back and, uh, and write another novel, I mean, I hope to at some point in the future, I do enjoy the, the process of, of novel writing. Yeah. I imagine my novels to be really, really short and much sparer than um, previous novels. Um, and I think, you know, the, the other great thing about, about script writing is actually seeing it 
seen it brought to life. That's a that's a hugely magical moment for a writer. And I don't I don't know why more um, novelists don't want to write and direct adaptations of of their own their own novels. I find it very hard, you know, to to kind of relinquish your your, your um, vision for characters that you you have in a novel. Mm. I think that the big thing for me was that. As a novel writer, you're always in control of your your characters, mm. um, complete control of them. It's a, it's a myth that you aren't, that your characters run away from you. It's nonsense. Mm. You're always in control. Um, but you only have a certain degree of, of creative autonomy and control over your characters in the filmmaking process. Um, you know, an actor can come along and completely um, subvert something really small like a line of, of dialogue and create something fresh and, and surprising in a way that you hadn't anticipated. So I think the process of, of directing, um, you have to be a lot more open, open to surprise, open to, um, change. Um, sorry, did you hear that? The yeah, 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 yeah. The window. yeah. I'll let you hear the shouting. Um, no, go on, carry on. Um, so I've lost my friend now. Um, you were talking about the. Uh, you were talk, You were just. I was just going to ask you then about who, who. Who then were you collaborating with to enjoy? Before you got. Because obviously the, the directing is very collaborative, as you just said. You know, the, yeah. the minute the minute somebody reads your lines or decides to straighten a tie in a in a in a, in a scene that you haven't written straight in the tie, then you go, oh, does that work? Does that not? But when you were still on, when you were still typing to the laptop. Um, who were you collaborating with to sort of check the story was there? You know, who was who was your sort of listing post, as it were? Okay, so um, I had uh, my two producers, yeah. um, David Hughes and David Moores. Yeah. Um, and both have got very different taste, very different sensibility, um, different types of, uh, you know, films appeal to, to both of them. Um, so it was great, you know, had very kind of contrasting and conflicting notes on the script. And, you know, I think those uh, those kind of notes, those editorial notes, um, that you really, really want to fight for and you get angry about and you don't want to change them, <laughs> I think they're always kind of grounded in truth. And, and, you know, you should run with it, you should run with your instincts. But I think those that unsettle you, that make you feel um, vulnerable and, and insecure, um, you have to, you know, you have to analyse why. And there's usually a reason why, you know, it's usually a reason that it is perhaps ringing, it is perhaps ringing false, um, and, you know, is, is worthy of, um, of reworking. I guess, but I guess when I'm they come back, I guess, I guess when they come back with the same opinion, you have kind of have to go, okay, maybe there's an issue, or maybe there's an opportunity. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. Um, but I think, you know, I think, you know, and also going back to the, the differences between novel writing and film writing, I think at, at script level with a film, and certainly with my first film, you know, it's a debut feature. Yeah. But what's really, a, I felt a perceived pressure from outside to kind of manipulate and exercise plot in a way that is not always entirely natural or, or, in, or instinctive. So initial readings of the script had suggested that um, perhaps there wasn't enough drama that um, the original more paired version of the script, which is very much a, you know, which was very much a character-driven piece, was was not a saleable product. And I think it's very hard for a writer and a director to think about a piece of a fiction in the way, in that way, you know, in the director's head, 
um, it's sacrosanct. It's kind of immune from the vulgarities of, uh, of market, market forces. Yeah. And I've never encountered this, this before as a novelist, perhaps because as a novelist, you know, certainly the way I write, which I always write out of contract. Um, so you're writing under your own steam. You're completely detached and impervious to the whims of the market. And no one's really invested in your work financially, emotionally, you know, at manuscript level. Yeah. So you can write as you wish. But, you know, as we all know, films require finance. They have to get made. They have to get out there. Mm. Um, I think you really have to establish yourself as a, um, you know, as a successful auteur before you can make a film that pandas to nothing and yeah. no one but your own vision um, and you know even there you know I'm sure with Michael Haneke you know there's still external forces that will shape his his creative process mm. um, but I don't know I think you know if The Violators was a, a third or fourth film I might have told the story slightly differently it might have lent itself to a more kind of spare paired back account of, of adolescent alienation but I'm really happy with the film that evolved during filming and in the editorial process too. What What do you remember being a sort of um, one of the hardest challenges to resolve in storytelling terms for you with the violators? Um, okay, at, at, at script level, I think um, there were a few strands of, of uh, narratives that um, intercept one another and also one parallel. So you have the developing relationship between the two girls, um, Shelley and Rachel, but also the developing uh, relationship between Mikey Finnegan and Shelley. And, you know, there's also the backstory with Shelley's abusive father and the sudden threat he presents when um, he's, he's released from prison. Um, so you, therefore you've got, you know, three different strands of story all competing for attention on the page. Mm. And certainly at script level, I, I, I found it tricky trying to allocate each one of them the correct amount of, you know, the right amount of screen time. But, you know, it's, it, I think it's only really once, once you start filming and see the story start to unfold on screen that the dominant story makes itself, you know, announces itself, makes itself known. And for me, this very, very quickly, um, two days into filming, became the relationship between Mikey and Shelley. Um, that became the dominant storyline for me. Okay, that's interesting that it came, that came like as you were into filming, as opposed to yeah, yeah. I don't think you know. I, I don't think you ever really know um, what you're filming until you start filming. Um, and I, you know, I, I imagine that it would be very hard to be found by a script or someone else's words where you can't rewrite. Um, on set, I did a lot of rewriting and, and, and retesting yeah. every day on set and also, you know, at night too. How, how do you separate the two? Because obviously they're two very different functions, the writer and the director. And obviously if you're wearing both hats, the writer has got all the imagination. So, you know, the joke would be, you know, the writer can say 50 elephants come over the hill and then obviously someone's got to find 50 elephants. But but obviously constrained by by, by normal finite resources... How did you balance that idea of your imagination versus what you what you were going to be able to direct and produce for as a film? Um, I do. You know, the whole scale of my ambition had to be paired right back at, okay. at script level. You know, it was filmed for for modest budget, and I think you know, if you've got no experience of a film, of producing a film, I, I didn't produce it. I wrote, I wrote and directed it. I mean, you've got no idea. You know. Um, how much, how much things cost. <laughs> we were looking in that, 
the, the, the kind of te- the tone and look, the look and feel of the film. I wanted it all shot and, and handheld. I um, wanted to use natural light where possible. So that wasn't, um, you know, that wasn't imposed on us by budget strokes. It was constraints. It was very much a, a conscious, a conscious decision. Yeah. Um, but it's, I'm saying that you don't really know until you get on set and have a very kind of romanticised, um, idealist view of how much natural light you can use. And, you know, you, you, need, you, you do need, you do need help. You do need help here and there. Um, and, you know, on, on our budget, it simply wasn't possible to execute some of the, the scenes and, you know, some of the vision that I had for particular shots and scenes. Okay. Um, you know, with, with such a kind of, a kind of small crew. And so, so when you were in that pre-production stage, moving from writer to director, and obviously, like you say, that never really, they stayed almost like running parallel, it sounds like to me, if you were rewriting and, and, and changing stuff as you went. But just thinking about that, that move to production, what was it on the page that seemed sort of the most insurmountable and, and sort of what, what did you do to, to achieve what you want, achieve the best of what you wanted? Um... Well, we had to work around the girls' uh, schooling commitment. Lauren, Lauren was, I think she was doing a first year of, of A-levels. Okay. And also around Stephen Lord's other filming projects. And I think this was this was in December when we were in pre-production and we were looking, I was hoping, for April, May, with the slightly longer days. Yeah. Um, and then a window became available to film in late January. So there's really very little time for rehearsals, for location scouting, and most important, you know, which would never happen again. Mm. I very, li- very little time with my director photographer to discuss shots, to prepare for them. Mm. Um, you, you know, a lot of the time we were getting up at four, the two of us, um, going down, finding locations, looking at the light, um, looking at the colour of the landscape and the tone. Um, and then, you know, two hours later, the, the crew would be up. So there's very, very little time for, for rehearsing and, and planning the shots that I'd wanted at script level. Um, and on top of that, the locations that we'd firmed up, they were all pulled from us two weeks before filming. Most of them were, were pulled oh. from us. A copy of, yeah, a, a copy of the script um, had been leaked, and my, pre- my producer had been telling, you know, the local businesses and council um, it was a rom-com. And I think, you know, once... Once the subject of, of the violators in particular, you know, teenage sexuality and grooming um, came to light, I think, you know, people's enthusiasm waned, you know, notably. Yeah. Um, and, and this was heartbreaking because um, I'd written the, you know, the shooting script um, very much with the landscape and locations in mind. And I'd already started planning uh, the long takes um, and all these great fancy shots we were going to have. And the, the wasteland, uh, the estate that we originally secured, mm. was um, it was situated in the centre of an estate. It was in a really elevated position. It had a really voyeuristic feel to it mm. um, so that all the goings-on on the wasteland could be seen by any one of the surrounding houses, including Shelley's and Kieran's. Um, so, yeah, that, 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 was all, that was all very, very disappointing. And it really into our time um, during the shoot because sometimes we were having to find locations on the morning. We were lucky because we had we had a 
a pretty intimate crew. You know, mm. there was about 15 of us all together. Yeah. And we were able to turn up film and leave without attracting too much attention. Right. And, you know, we still managed to film within a, a five-mile radius. Um, so the landscape had a, had a certain truth to it. And I think, you know, I think that's really important that, if you are, you know, filming, um, I film the sensibility like the violators, you know, that is very much grounded in realism mm. and truth that, um, you know, the world, you know, does feel like a world that's born out of the landscape than something that's been, been filmed, you know, um, on set as opposed to on, lo on location. And, you know, the locations cease to become locations, but rather, you know, they become parts of a fictive world that you're, you're trying to create. And I really noticed it in the, in the editing grade. There was a consistency to, in, you know, tone, colour and sensibility across the, across the landscape. Well, no, I mean, I must, I mean, um, go on, sorry. Sorry, Stuart. Sorry, go on. So I was just going to say, is that the, the, fic, the, fic, the idea of the, 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 the place being a fiction that you've created, you've created your, your narrative in. Is, is something that yeah. really struck, struck me when I watched it. Because, I mean, as you probably tell from my accent, I'm from, I'm from Manchester, but my family's yeah. all, my dad's family's from Liverpool. So I, I, I know both the cities and I also know okay. post-industrial, post you know, post-industrial Northwest. And so, yeah. and, 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 it, and right down to the fact that you had actors from Liverpool and Manchester in the, in the performance, it sort of felt like a kind of, like dark fairy tale version of the Northwest, but it wasn't specific. I didn't feel like I was, in just Birkenhead, and it was Birkenhead is bad or good or whatever. It was just like this is maybe what s some of the Northwest experience has been like in the places that got forgotten. Yeah, that's 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 very that was very much my intention from the start. It was kind of a, a forsaken, forgotten wasteland. You know, it could exist anywhere on the the outskirts of Runcorn, on the outskirts of um, Trafford. Um, on the outskirts of, of Liverpool, um, and it was more the, the sense of alienation and kind of economic and and, and social, um, you know, disengagement that I wanted to portray rather than to uh, portray an actual physical geographical place truthfully. Mm. And you know, if, you're, if you're from Manchester, you'll know the area of, of Partington. Mm. Um, and that area, you know, from, from being a, a teenager and, and going to school on the outskirts of Manchester, I grew up in Warrington, but I went to school um, in Cheshire. Um, and I used to pass through Partington on the bus every day, and it fascinated me. It was this mad little estate in the middle of suburban posh Cheshire. Mm. Um, and, ori and originally, you know, that was that was the inspiration for, for the violators. That was the place, you know, because the place that inspired it, it was... It's Partington and Carrington and the areas around there. And we, you know, we, we tried, we originally tried to, um, to, you know, to see if, if that was a possibility, if we, we could film there, but it, it just, it just wasn't possible really. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm glad the way, you know, the way, the way things turned out that we did end up filming in, in Birkenhead. Um, cause I think, you know, although, although it's a, it's a very small world, um, that's created on screen there's also a lot of space there's a lot of space in Birkenhead big fast open horizons um you know especially around the Dockland area and I 
I really liked, you know, I really liked using those, those kind of big wide panoramic horizons that we use in, in the film. Mm. So, so what are you saying about the sensitivities with the story once it sort of got leaked, as it were? Um, those, those dark places that the violators go, then how did that affect the casting process for you? Because obviously for your main characters, these weren't, these weren't scenes you were going to be able to hide from them. So how did you deal with that as part of the casting process? Um, well, I, I first saw um, Laura McQueen when she was, who played Shelley when she was 15. Okay. Um, and I had a very, very early draft of the, of the script at that point. But I thought I'd wait till she was, she was 16. So I waited 12 months before um, I approached her and was really, really pleased that she hadn't done that much in between. Yeah. Um, so she was still very much unknown with mm. no experience on, on film, which was a massive advantage to right. me. Um, and I, I was, you know, I was pretty adamant about, about using unknown cast where possible. I think everything has to be grounded in truth. And the, the first time we see Shelley in, in the Penny Arcade, I think it's important that who we're seeing is, is 14 year old Shelley Hudson and, and not an actor, you know, who we know, of um, and is familiar to us. And, you know, cause I, I think, you know, no matter how kind of nuanced and, and brilliant their performance, um, once we see a familiar face, it, it shatters, it shatters the, the illusion. And I think, you know, for a film that's shot entirely on location, mm. um, using natural light, and um, it really can jeopardize the, the viewing experience. Um, I, you know, it was, I, I think especially for the younger cast, um, it was important that they could deliver really natural performances. Um, and I think it is difficult for, for young actors who've come from TV or theatre to make mm. that transition to, to film, especially if what you're asking from them, you know, is a really kind of naturalistic uh, performance. Um, Callan Chadwick King, he plays Jerome, he had no experience whatsoever. Um, and there was, you know, there, there, there was a little bit of concern when we cast him concern from my producers that it was a tough script. It was a very tough shooting schedule and mm. there simply wouldn't be time to, to rehearse him. And he was quite nervous when he read, but there was something really special about him and something that I think no amount of rehearsing or drama schooling can, can coach. He just had this, this innate understanding of, of the script, of the story. He'd read the whole, the whole script. I think he was tw he was twelve years old, and um, you know we'd sent it to his agent and said, you know, just give him his particular scenes to read because it's quite a heavy going script. But I don't know how he got his hands on the script, but he had. He'd read the entire script. He really understood Jerome's character, mm. um, and he was just great, you know, at those kind of facial and, and bodily tics required to make a line of dialogue really, really ring true. And and on set. He was really low maintenance. He required nothing at all in the way of attention. He was just a natural and a, and a joy to work with. Um, I think, you know, it does have its problems though using young actors and especially Lauren, you know, um, she was, she was 17 when she actually filmed. Um, but there was nervousness, you know, on, on all our parts from Lauren, from me, um, from Stephen Lord and also from, from my producers. And the run-up to filming, I'd kept them away from one another. I wanted the first time that they meet to be on screen. And I think, you know, you can really tell there's something kind of innate and chemical. There's a nervousness that comes from Lauren, and that 
I think that goes beyond performance. It's something that comes from from within. She was very nervous in that, those first few days, um, and that was great. We captured that, um, but we found the sex scene towards the car scene. I should say towards the end of the shoot, where by that time she was very familiar with Stephen, and we were very much a family. We had a close set, and. Um, we talked through every bit of action. So there was no poetic license. There was no room for ambiguity. We knew exactly, um, well, she knew exactly what would happen and, mm. and at what point. And, yeah, she she was brilliant. She was very, very professional. And, um, yeah, we had, there was a very, I mean, it's quite, it's quite serious, the atmosphere on set, because it's, it's a hardened environment where we were working. It was in the scourge of, of winter and I tried to rehearse the actors on you know on location outside where where possible so they were all freezing and had these scowls <laughs> on the faces um which you know which which, which really really you know I, I think it, it it paid off um but when it came to shooting those you know those more kind of uncomfortable scenes mm. um you know we there was nice food um there was a warm cozy friendly environment um, and you know there was a lot of there was a lot of joke and and and, and good humour before they went into um, those scenes. What was your conversation then, like with Stephen then? Stephen Stephen Lord who plays Mikey, who's I guess the the the, the antagonist in in what we're talking about. Yeah, Stephen's actually from Salford. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. I went and had a, a cup of tea with him. He didn't, he didn't read. I went and had a cup of tea with him. Yeah. And he, he read the script. Yeah. And, and really, really got it, really got Mikey's world, you know, it was very kind of intimate with those type of, of narratives that, um, you know, evolved from those estates and worlds. So, um, yeah, you know, I just, I knew within 10 minutes of talking to him that I wanted him, mm. um, and he was the right person. We we saw a lot of people, um, a lot of actors um, for Mikey, a lot of actors came in, about 30 or 40, and we, we, you know, we we were struggling. We were thinking about how to move back filming, mm. push it back um, six months or or a year even, um, mm. because we couldn't find our Mikey Mikey Finnegan. So we were really really lucky that we found him, mm. and and when we did, um, but yeah, he 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 um. He, he was really great with the with the, with the young actors, um, you know, especially the ones you know who'd had no experience on a mm. on a film set. For they they kind of uh, he set a certain tone um, and a standard, and um, they um, they all took their cue from him. Good, good, good. Now, for, for me, my, 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 it makes it, it's obviously um, Mikey and Shelley's story when you watch the film. But I thought one of the interesting mm-hmm. sort of subplots was the sort of... Blossoming sounds like the wrong word in the context of highlights, but it's how I see it, is the, the Andy Hudson character that Derek Barr plays. Because at yeah. first, you, you, you give us this man who's like, you know, just a base, living on living to, for today kind of character, and you think, what, what a waste of space. But by... As the story evolves, you get to a little bit of an emotional heart of who he is, without going too far. I mean, he's not, he's not bloody Superman by the end of it, but 
but the human side of him comes out by the end of the film that, that obviously we get the classic binary um, surface reaction to him when we first meet him. Look at him, he's not sent the kid to bed and he's, he's gobby and he's, you know, he's getting wasted or whatever. But then by the end of the film, we understand his character a lot more. And I thought it was a neat thing you were able to do there in amongst, you know, the, the story that clearly is Shel what happens between Shelley and Mike. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think, you know, I think the term, the violators, um, you know, it's got a lot of political and gendered um, connotations. I think it was first coined by second wave radical feminist Andrea Dworkin, but I think, you know, the the boys, the men, um, Duane, played by Colin Chadwick King, and Andy, played by Derek Barr, you know, they're, they're very much, they're very much victims, very much, you know, they've also been violated in, in their own right. And Derek, Derek Barr really was a joy to work with. You know, there was a, there was a couple of actors um, that you were able to give poetic license to. Yeah. Um, and, you know, De- Derek Barr stuck to none of the dialogue he'd been given at all. Really? Um, and, yeah, and gave something different with, with each take. But, it, 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 you know, it, it came from a very real place and um, it worked, worked. I think, you know, the difficulty you have is if you have other younger actors um, that don't have, you know, don't have the same experience and they're not able to respond to surprise or something new. Um, but, yeah, he was great. He was really great to, to work with. And he, you know, that was, it was very much a, a, a collaborative thing between Derek Barr and I, um, you know, Andy's kind of slow uh, revealing of his inner Vulnerable side, and vulnerable side, and yeah. I think he managed that tension brilliantly. You know, even in the moments where he's scared and he's fearful, he, he's never he's never wimpy. Um, I just think that he has more and more integrity as as you know as the as the, as the story develops. No, without a doubt, that's that's what stood out for me anyway. So um, without without, I mean, you've you've talked a lot. Maybe 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 the um, the, the sort of more exploitative scenes. Uh, involving Mike and Shelley were maybe the the, the aspects that that, that um, you'd be interested to see what the audience is response to is. But do, is there, is there? I, I mean, because early on you talked about the landscapes and you've talked about the um, the sort of tight crew that you had and bringing in yeah. people that weren't necessarily completely experienced or well versed with film, coupled with some of the some of the older heads. What what is it about? Uh, without giving too much away, you know what what. What are you most excited about for the audience to to maybe experience in a specific sense of, of a scene, or generally in terms of what you think you've achieved with the violators? Um, I I think just unleashing um, the amazing talent that is uh, Lauren McQueen and Brogan Ellis. You know, two very assured, intelligent performances from young female leads at the start of their their screen careers. I feel hugely privileged to to have worked with them both. Um, you know, and I hope it will inspire other directors, male and, and female, to write those type of, you know, real strong, bold, audacious um, roles for, for young women. There aren't enough of them. So, so let's just remind people then how, when and how they can see The Violators. Um, okay, so... Um, I'm going to I'm gonna have to look this up. Sorry. Sorry. So, I mean, let's just say it's available from Monday the 25th okay, of July. I've, I've got it here. I've written it down. 
phone got my computer this morning. So, where am I? Can we see the film? <laughs> okay. Go on, tell, tell us, Helen, thing. tell us. It's, okay, so it's, uh, yeah, it's released on DVD today. Yeah, Monday the 25th of July. Available, um, you know, HMV, Amazon Fox, and it can be seen on demand at BSI Player, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Video, Sky Store, Wheel Colony. Um, and if you check the Biolator's Facebook page, there's also a few select screenings um, in the autumn. Brilliant. We'll, we'll make sure those goes in the show notes then as well. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Stuart. So um, the one bit of homework you had to do that wasn't about your film was... Uh, um, uh, yeah was because uh, we're Britflix and every now and again we like to get the filmmakers to, to sort of give us a recommendation of something that you love that's a British movie that may well be yeah. under underrated or it may have been overlooked oh. because of the obviously the wealth of content that's available these days. Um, so what, what is it that, um, what, what's one that springs to mind for mm. you? I, I don't know. All the films I've seen are European. I'm just, I'm just joking there. Um, I think you know one of one of you know the most um, visually arresting films I've seen in the last British films I've seen in the last five years is Cleo Bernard's The The Selfish Giant. Okay. Um, and I think that's a film that really deserves to be to be seen more. I think it was I think it was released in 2013. Yeah. And, you know, while it while it was, it was deemed a masterpiece amongst critics and, and art house fans, um, it's you know it's uh, not that many people have seen it. And like you know, I really would urge people to to go and, and buy and or find this film. It's a really beautiful, honest, and accomplished film. No, I think I think this is. Uh, I was I went to one of the uh, public consultations for the BFI. I don't know if you had a chance to go to one that was in the northwest. No, don't know. Part of their re- they're, they're looking at for their new strategy is sort of how does how do we reach audiences with film, and obviously more importantly, mm-hmm. how do we reach audiences with British film? And I think something like the BFI player, which is still in its infancy, is is something that could could provide that. You know, it's almost like. If, if nothing else, it'll always be available there, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and then people get to... Because part of it is getting to know where you can watch stuff. I mean, I think with the with the competition between TV and film, sometimes when somebody says, if you watch this, you have to ask, where can I watch it first? Not not so much, yeah. not so much. OK, I'll go and check it out, which used to be the simple way of going to see things. But, yeah. Um, so what's next for you, then? Have you got any, have you got any movies or, or, or even novels on the go or in the pipeline that you'll... Yeah, I... Just in the script for my um, second feature, which I'm very excited about. Um, it's a story that's really, really close to my heart and one that I feel really passionate about sharing with the world. Mm. But I'm not going to say anything about it. Of course, so. that'd be silly. That'd be silly. <laughs> well, look, Ellen, well, that just leaves me then to say thank you very much for uh, giving us your time on Brickflix Podcast. Yeah, thank you. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. 
Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Oh, yeah. 